You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. It's quite probably one of the most famous and popular verses in the entire Bible. It's been sung, it's been quoted, it's been printed, it's been framed. You'll find it on like coffee mugs, you'll find it on fridge magnets on the front of journals and etched into the very minds of believers around the entire world. We love Jeremiah 29 11. It's a great soundbite. It's a great promise. But it is also one of the most misunderstood, misrepresented, misused, misquoted verses that you are ever likely to find in the Bible. I mean, Houston, we have a problem. I mean, can we take this verse and apply it to ourselves? Is it a promise for us at all? And what should we take from Jeremiah 29 11? Good morning. Welcome to Riverview Church Online. My name's Tom. Let's dive in. And the first thing I want to ask is what is the problem here? Why am I raising this? I mean, the problem is that often the emphasis of Jeremiah 29 11 is placed on, on this life, on things here and now, on success, like winning it, living our best life now, being the best version of ourselves. It's about prosper, being prosperous, being happy, satisfied with pleasurable things and divinely protected from all harms and all kind of disease. And the problem really comes when we face ill health or ill intentions of people around us, or perhaps famine, or financial kind of hardship, poverty, or pestilence. I mean, when those things happen to us, where does that leave it? I mean, is God a liar? Or am I a failure? Really, those are the two options. If this doesn't work out in my life, and I believe that that's what the promise is saying, is God lying? Is there something wrong with this? Or am I a failure? Is God's plan really for you to be rich and successful? I mean, is his intention that, that you live a life that is free from adversity and danger and pain? And the question is, how did that work out for Jeremiah himself? I mean, known as the weeping prophet, threatened, taunted, beaten, thrown into a cistern and eventually stoned to death. I mean, it didn't work out too great for him if that's how we take the promise. But a hope and a future is not about all my ducks lining up. It's not about college or career or spouse and house. I mean, I really don't want to be bursting anybody's bubble this morning. In fact, quite the opposite, because I fully believe that when we grasp a hold of what God really wants us to grasp here, we will take hold of something far richer, far more satisfying, far more fulfilling and far more lasting than what we want to see on offer, i.e. kind of success and security in this life now. And, and sometimes in order to take hold of the fullness of what God has for us, we need to first let go of the things that we're grabbing onto that we think that we want or that we think he should 
be giving us. And it's kind of like Andrew mentioned last week, saying about seeking his kingdom first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that these things are of more value than the things of this world, like food and clothing. And yes, that stuff is important and God will provide it as we trust in him. That's the all these things will be added. But if our minds are full of money and security and comfort and success, then how will there be any room left for us to seek and find that which is so much better? So the intention of this message today is to take this really popular kind of soundbite verse and put it back into the context in which it was originally written and then find from there what God is saying to us here and now. So firstly, let's look at the context. This is really important. And this is a specific promise in a specific time in history to a specific people. And so let's rewind even before Jeremiah 29.11. You might remember if we go back to Genesis 3, like God placed mankind in this spacious, perfect garden where they had everything that they could possibly want or need, and where their welfare and their security and their safety were totally secure. And that's God's plan to prosper and not to harm mankind. But there was also a warning right there in the garden. Do not eat from this one tree. It, it will kill you. So enjoy your life or choose death. That was really the option there. Obey and you have life or disobey and choose death. And then in Leviticus 26, we looked at this a bit last year, God had at length kind of outlined that if people were to obey and walk as he advised them to walk in obedience, they would enjoy, like, again, his plan to prosper and not to harm mankind. But if they chose a path of rejecting him and of disobedience, then they were choosing death. It wasn't that God was pouring punishment. It was that they were choosing to walk down a road of destruction and death. And now, in the narrative, we find ourselves after years of cycles of following God and rejecting God, of obedience and of disobedience, and after years of generous second chances that God keeps giving them, now they are at a place where their choices and their actions have led to their eventual captivity and to the impending loss and destruction of their temple, their city and their lands. And so that is where we come to in Jeremiah chapter 29. And this famous popular verse is actually part of a letter. It's a letter that Jeremiah had written, obviously inspired by God because he's carrying the words of God. And it, it was written somewhere between the first wave of exiles from uh, from Jerusalem, from Judah into Babylon around 597 BC. Uh, in between that and the final full exile and destruction of Jerusalem that was in 586 BC. And at the time where this letter was written, there were some Jews who remained in Jerusalem, but they had hearts that were hardened toward God. They didn't recognize his purposes. They didn't even care about his purposes. Uh, and they didn't recognize that actually what God was wanting to do was to turn them back to him, to turn their faces back towards him. And these people that remained in Judah at the time had false expectations. They were listening to false prophets who were claiming that this exile would be like over 
in a jiffy, that it would be just a short time. And this was in complete contradiction to what God was saying through Jeremiah, through his prophet. Now, while the second half of this letter in Jeremiah 29 kind of scathingly deals with those who were remaining in Judah, who were hard-hearted and, uh, and rebellious, the, the letter was actually written to those who had been sent into lockdown. I mean, sorry, into Babylon. And, and the letter's main purpose was to assure them of the firmness of God's promises and to reassure them that God had not abandoned them, and neither had he abandoned his promises. Regardless of the severity of the circumstances, he still cared for their welfare and was still making a way where there seemed to be no way. Now, you know things get lost in translation, right? And, and the interesting thing here is in translation is that Almost every time we see this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, isolated on a mug or a poster or a screensaver or whatever, the word prosper is used every time, but it's not used in every single translation of the Bible. So reading from the ESV, for example, it's translated as welfare. And that the same is true in the Holman Christian Standard Bible and both the 1977 and the 95 versions of the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. Now, among those who actually do still translate it as prosper are the NIV, the Berrien Study Bible, the Good News Bible, and the modern NASB. And then other translations use words like good or well-being or success. And then the King James, New King James, and ASV and ERV use the word peace. So which one is correct? Why so many translations of this word? Why, why are there so many different kind of words that, that seem really quite different from what, each other? Well, you know, the problem for translators is that they're trying to take an ancient Hebrew word or ancient Hebrew words, which are packed with deep, rich kind of levels of meaning. And, and then they're trying to take that rich, deep word and apply it, convey it into our language uh, and often trying to convey the full meaning of, uh, of, of uh, a Hebrew word using one English word is pretty much impossible. So actually to understand this verse and to understand all of it, we really need to know what the word was, the Hebrew word that Jeremiah actually used. And that word was shalom, shalom. And I think this is where we first kind of get a sense that by attributing this verse solely to prosperity, we sell it far short because shalom. Well, many of you may well understand that to mean peace, right? I mean, it's a, it's a favorite Hebrew word across the Christian world. We love the word shalom, and it's still used in Israel as a greeting to people. Shalom, peace be with you, peace to you. So straight away, we are talking about more than that which the word prosperity actually kind of alludes to here. And, and in fact, the word shalom even means so much more than simply peace. It's actually about wholeness. It's about completeness. It's about soundness. It's about peace. It's about safety. It's about welfare. It's about health. It's about contentment. And it's about prosperity. It encompasses 
all of those things. So when God says, I will repay the years that the locusts have eaten, that's shalom. That is a wholeness. That is a restoration of the full kind of picture. And, and believer, God is working all things together to that end for you right now. He, he is the one who does and will restore all things, whatever it looks like right now. But this promise is not just about things, even like important and necessary things. It's about the complete and total welfare, the ultimate security and the absolute contentment of the one who walks rightly with God and whose trust is placed firmly in Father God. So, so much more than the things that he gives. This is talking about the promise of his presence. Now, I never had a relationship with my dad, and that is so costly to me. He, he died when I was very little, and he left me a sum of money, which, to be honest, didn't last very long because I was foolish with it, like the prodigal son. And, and the thing is, you know, when my life is spent and no matter how well off I am at the end of that or, you know, how how great things were for me in my life, I never had the joy of that relationship with my father. I never experienced his presence. And that, to be honest, I would prefer by far. I would give everything, everything just for one minute of face to face time with my dad. You know, I had his money, but not his presence. And, and the promise that God makes in Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't either or, it's, it's both and. It is seek first his presence and all these things will be added unto you. His presence first and these things added now and a hope and a future given to us as well. You don't have to choose between the father and the inheritance. That's the mistake that the prodigal son made. I, I can be with my father in poverty, he thought, or I can have riches in his absence. But what that prodigal son soon discovered was that outside of the father's house, things like money and success and pleasure were transitory. They were temporary. They were limited and ultimately completely unfulfilling and unsatisfying. But returning to Father, seeking him out, seeking him first, the Son discovered that if you have the Father, you already have everything. I mean, as the father in that story that Jesus told said to the oldest son when he was complaining, he said, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. If you have the presence of God, all these things will be added to you. So Jeremiah 29 11 isn't about like having a great life and everything here and now. It can be that, but it's about God's presence. It's about the fullness of his shalom for us. And then all these things added. That's what God intends for you. And it's so much richer and more splendid than earning a top wage or having all the material cool kind of things that we want. Because it's not the promise of his stuff. It's the promise of his presence. And in his presence, we have completeness. In his presence, we have wholeness. We have 
everything. We have his shalom. We are rich beyond measure. That is why we are prioritising presence over process this year in Riverview Church. But please, please notice here that there is a great partnership between the promised shalom, peace, and our deliberate and willful obedience, our intentional seeking of him first. Notice that relationship. Notice that partnership. He, he says, uh, Jeremiah says, then you will, or God says through Jeremiah, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. You know, this is the problem of Genesis 3 and Leviticus 7, uh, 26 and the narrative of ancient Israel and, in fact, the entire story of the relationship between God and man. I mean, how can we find this peace? How can we have this wholeness and this security in the presence of God if every fibre of our flesh and our intentions is attracted to other things, wanting to grab other things, how quickly we forget the joy of being in his presence and how quickly we turn to other sources of fulfilment and, uh, and enriching and joy. You know, if we cannot in and of ourselves like walk in righteousness consistently and in perfect obedience, like, well, the problem is we can't do that stuff. But God so loved us that he gave his only son, his perfect, his obedient, his righteous, his spotless son, so that anyone, you and me, anyone who would believe and trust in him, walk with him effectively, would be clothed in his righteousness, in his life, in his obedience. That's such a great transformative joy because I know that I'm going to fail, but I know that he has not failed and he has not failed and puts that on my account. So can this verse, does this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, apply to you and me? Well, of course it does, because no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So, God is promising to welfare us. He is not seeking our harm and he is our provider of, of these important and necessary things in the here and now. But that's not a guarantee of worldly success. It's not a guarantee of wealth as we see it or as we seek those things. And, and it's not actually a guarantee of freedom from pain, which we would prefer by far. But that's not what the promise is saying. Uh, and we need to remember here that firstly, this promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 was fulfilled to those exiled Jews when they were able to return and rebuild. And then this is really, truly and fully kind of fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself, that he is our prosperity, that he is our welfare, our hope and our future. So the promise of shalom is met in Jesus. It is Jesus who is Emmanuel, God with us. It's the promise of 
his presence and that is so much richer and better by far that the promise that Jesus will live his life through us in order that we may access the promise in order that we may access the promise of his ultimate shalom and enjoy the benefits of walking with God as he intended when he created us in that garden it's not about his presence <laughs> I'll put this up on the screen, otherwise it won't make sense. It's not about his presence. It's about his presence. But in his presence, you have everything. It's all yours. If you have the Father, if you have the Son, if you have the Spirit, then you are already blessed with every spiritual blessing. You already have the inheritance and the Holy Spirit seals that. He's the deposit, the guarantee of what is to come. And it is here and now, and it is a hope and a future as well. God provides for us right where we are, but he's also got so much more, so much greater stored up for us, a hope and a future where there's no sin, where there's no sickness, where there's no more suffering, where there's no more evil and where there's no more death. And that is a hope and a future that is worth grasping a hold of, that is promised to us. Now this letter was written to encourage God's people as they had been forcibly removed from their temple, from their city and from their lands. And that whatever the reason for those restrictions were, God had not abandoned them and neither had he abandoned his promises to them. That's what this letter was about. Now imagine for a minute that you and your nation are in a dire situation. Can you imagine that? Imagine that calamity has arrived, that you are cut off from normality, cut off from your traditions and your heritage and your preferences, that you are denied your freedoms and even your rights, and that you are unable to gather in the ancient meeting places. I mean, can you imagine that right now? Is that something that you can possibly fathom at this moment? And now imagine right there that in that place, God writes you a letter. What would he say? How would it read? So as I wrap up this morning, I want to read you the first part of that letter that God sent through Jeremiah to those exiled to Babylon in 597 BC. And I'm reading from Jeremiah 29 and verse 4, and it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent, to whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. See, God is saying, like, bed in here, guys, you're in this for a while. Like, put your roots down here because this is going to be a, a long duration here. It goes on in verse seven. But seek the welfare, the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare in 
in the town's welfare, we will find our welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. I mean, imagine if we were here for 70 years. Lord, I hope not. But when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to welfare you and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you to exile. God is going to bring us back into the church, people. Know that this morning. God is going to bring us back into the place where we can gather physically together, where the, the, the praise from our lips becomes incense to his throne. That is going to happen. Like a letter sent during dire circumstances and God told them that there would be 70 years of this exile but his promise still stood and his promise still stands today and while he does care for our needs and while he does have his eyes upon you actually and presently that's a reality Ultimately, though, we will see the completion of this promise when we stand before him face to face and we see him as he is. Now, I said I'd give everything for one minute of time with my dad. One minute. How much would you be prepared to give to spend eternity face to face with Jesus? And my final point here, and I'm wrapping, really, really wrapping up with this. My final point is that our welfare our wholeness, our peace is intrinsically linked to the welfare, the wholeness and the peace of this town. Did you see that in the letter? What you do, church, in this town, what you do, what I do, individually and together, it matters. If you are struggling to find that wholeness of God's peace, then pray for it for the town. Because in the town's welfare, in the town's shalom, we will find our shalom. And listen, the you in the letter uh, and, and in the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 is plural. It's not you as an individual. It's you people. It's you God's people. But when the church is alive and present, the whole town benefits. Your kingdom come, Lord. And your will be done in bonus as it is in heaven. So church, rise up in confidence that you are in his presence. 
find your voice. Seek him first with all of your heart. Seek the welfare of this town. Declare his name. Pray for bonus without ceasing. Don't leave it to one or two people to go and pray for the town. Really invest yourself. Whether you go out of your front door or, or whether you stay in your closet, invest in praying for the welfare and the salvation of this town because in that place is where we will find our welfare. Lord, your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Amen.